This episode is brought to you by some of our sponsors. Tier 1 Talks would not exist if we did not have the ability to have sponsorship. And I would like to thank Brute Force Tactical for supplying all the sandbag needs for Tier 1 athletes, our Instagram parent page. As you know, every workout metabolic conditioning circuit that is put into Tier 1 athletes, also known as uh, tactical conditioning, uses sandbags. Sandbags are the ultimate unusual large odd object. And if you are training to be an operator, uh, tactical athlete, training for the tactical games, or just training for life, if you are working in the tactical environment, fire, EMS profession, law enforcement training, if you are military, you need this in your life. The company Brute Force Tactical provides sandbags in various size, capacity, and shapes. Everything from the Brute Ball, one of my favorites, 100 to 150 pound Brute Ball, which will humble you. You stack that up with uh, a rower running or an assault cycle, and guess what? You're going to kick your own ass. They have the operator bag, the strong hand, no, uh, correction, strong man, no hands, sandbag, up to 200 pounds. It's a common object used in the tactical games. I strongly encourage you to get after it. Train accordingly. Uh, hit up our link tree on Tier 1 Athletes, and you will find a link to Brute Force Tactical, where you will always get a discount purchasing any sandbag through Tier 1 Athletes. I would also like to thank Hoist Hydration. Hoist Hydration is a company that is making top-level hydration products. If you thought Gatorade was it, it's not. Uh, coconut water, not. Hoist Hydration brings you IV-level hydration. It has a perfectly isotonic solution, meaning that it is absorbed directly into the bloodstream without the need for digestion. Have you ever drank a quart of water and had sloshy stomach right after you work out or before? Drink hoist. You will not have that problem anymore. You can literally feel it going into your bloodstream as soon as you ingest it. It is an amazing recovery tool. I use it after every endurance event I have. Uh, it contains double the electrolytes, half the sugar, and it actually tastes amazing. Multiple flavors, peach, orange, dragon fruit, strawberry, watermelon, soon to be released in their powder packets, which will allow you to take hoist with you anywhere and add it to any of those plastic water bottles that we're all used to getting off of trucks or helicopters that are hot and in the middle of nowhere. Something that someone says, hey, you need water, here you go. And you have a little 16.9 ounce bottle of water. Now you can add your hoist hydration packet to it, change the dynamics of that drink, and actually rehydrate. Thank you again to our sponsors. Let's get on with the show. Stand by to meet our next guest. So everybody, welcome back to Tier 1 Talks. We've had to uh, find a way to operate in this time of COVID. Uh, it's been tough on everybody. It's been tough on my guests. It's been tough on travel. It's been tough on me. Um, I've been sick. 
I've been sent home from work. I haven't, um, I have not tested positive, nor have I had anyone in my family test positive, but people all around us are falling out left and right. It's a real, it's a real sickness. Um, how fatal it is if you're healthy, I really don't know. Um, I was talking with my brother the other day. Uh, all these Division One football teams are being shut down because they have positive rates, but I have yet to hear of one Division One football player being put into an ICU. So with that being said, all of you folks out there listening, I think the vaccine already exists. It is called Stay Healthy, my friends. And speaking of health, I have a good friend on the line with me right now. I want to introduce to you, Sean Buck Rogers. Um, awesome person. He uh, has has his own Instagram site. He has his own uh, YouTube channel called the FNG. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean. It's the FNG uh, channel. FNG Academy, yeah. FNG Academy, that's right. Yeah. It's the FNG Academy, and it's for... All you people out there aspiring to be operators, it is a lot of what Tier 1 Talks does, which is the lessons learned the hard way are yep. easily, easily explained to you prior to you ever beginning your journey. Exactly. So with that being said, um, Sean, thank you for being on Tier 1 Talks. No, man, I'm happy to be here, dude. I appreciate you you know, reaching out, and it's always an, a blessing to be able to talk and tell my story and uh, meet new people who are... Uh, trying to do the same thing and reach out and help others. You know, it's a, it's a small community of guys out there that just want to give back to their communities that gave them so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and, and all the young guys that are out there, they're, they're looking, you know, and they, they have all the answers in, in the device in their hand and they're like, Hey, how do I do this? And everyone will tell them run fast, swim fast, do lots of pull, pull ups, push ups, sit ups, but there's more to it. Oh yeah. There's, there's so much more. And it's like, um, that's what we're trying to bring on the FNG podcast and, and mainly talk about, you know, things that aren't so great about being special operations too. And not just, you know, talking about the glory days. Um, so people know what they're getting themselves into with the idea that if we are open and honest about what the job actually is, um, the right people will choose that path, uh, and not just pick it for the, you know, the, the highlights and then realize that, you know, maybe they should have done something else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I don't think, I don't think it's well understood by the lay person that, I mean, there's always pictures granted. I'm, it would be funny if I put up on tier one talks, if I put up like say a, a week's worth of pictures from whether it's fire military or law enforcement of the special operations communities doing what they do 90% of the time, mm. you know, not, not, the, <laughs> not the two to 3% of getting after it, but I'm, right. ta I'm talking about the, Oh, here we are cleaning our equipment. Here we are changing yep. out batteries. Here we are uh, doing this mundane drill that we've done a thousand times just to make sure that we're dialed in case it does happen. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's, it's so much of that, especially as a Bravo, because I was a weapons sergeant and, you know, your, your headspace and time in the 50 cals, you're checking and rechecking your ammo counts and um, trying to make sure that you have enough ammo without taking up all your space. And it's just like it's like you're running in circles constantly um, in fear that you're going to miss something uh, for when it really counts. And then because, you know, you're just going to be kicking yourself in the ass if you uh, mess it up 
you know, in hindsight's 2020 and you're going to be like, you know what? I knew better and I messed it up and that's my fault. And then just hope that no one gets hurt because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that, that's the truth, man. Like I see it time and again, like we, we, uh, in, in my small world, we do the same drills so many times, but Mm -hmm. the, the concept of it is, you know, we add twists and we, constantly are training we train until our basics become fundamental and Mm -hmm. then we train until our fundamentals become advanced absolutely and you know like you get to a point where i can't remember who said it but um somewhere along the line um i i adapted this uh analogy or this philosophy that i'm going to train my people in such a high stress uh, unrealistic scenario environment and people criticize me for it. They're like, wow, you, you know, you're doing stuff like um, preparing for like space shuttle rescue. Obviously you're never going <laughs> to rescue the space shuttle, but it, they said, you know, everything you prepare for is never going to happen. And, and my point on that was exactly. So when something comes along that is completely unanticipated or unexpected, we've already done something so much more complex that, the, the guys look at it and they, they take a breath and they go, I got this. Yeah, no, that's a great point. You know, that's definitely the way to do it. And and we do the same thing in special operations. It's like you're going above and beyond in every facet that you can. Like, again, it's just the last thing you want to do is be caught with your pants down when the time really, really matters. Because just like we talked about that, that, there's only those few times when you're out there really hitting it. Right. And the rest of the time it's all preparation. So it's like the last thing you want to do is drop the ball when it really, like you finally get your chance to go out and get after it and to do your job. Like you want to own it. And I, I've been talking to, to fighters and stuff too. I was telling you before, like I'm getting in the process of, of interviewing UFC fighters and kind of trying to bridge uh, the world of UFC with um, special operations and, the cool thing about doing that is I'm finding that there's so many similarities with, um, and just like talking to you, there's so many similarities to all the high stress environment jobs and the people that make it to the tops of those environments. And we all do the same things. We're just doing it in a different capacity. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely true. And, and your own, like, like a UFC fighter, you're only as good as your last performance. Absolutely. You know, that, that moment that you get that, you know, the light put on you and you're only as good as that one moment where you either made something look basic or pardon my French, man, you shit the bed. And if, you know, and and God forbid, you don't want to do that when, when lives are in the balance, You, you know, you, your teammate or, you know, victims. And, you know, that's, that's, what we're after we're you know we're all living a life of service in a high stress environment trying to make things better for other people yeah and you know we've all at at some point we've all shit the bed and and we we like but that's the value that comes from failing is that we've all had that like gut-wrenching feeling of i never ever ever want to do that again and then so it just like feeds back into the machine and then so you get with these you know high high stake units regardless of you know what operational capacity they're in and likely there's a vast majority of them that have you know shit the bed and are just fighting desperately to never do it again yeah it's the lessons learned in blood 
whether it's yours yeah. or your victims or your, or your team. It, it's so true. And I have those memories and I'm sure you do too. And uh, right. It, they're tough, but you know, they're formative and they make you, they make you who you are and they make you pursue excellence. Absolutely. Um, dude, you, you, uh, you're, you're, you're a relatively young guy. Um, for the audience, how old are you? Uh, 33, 33, 30, no, 34. I'm 34. 34. I stopped. I stopped counting, dude. I don't, I try to, avoid <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I don't even want to know. You know, what's funny is the, uh, I had to see the physical therapist and the doctor yesterday for working an injury. And the doctor asked me like, how old are you? And, I'm, and I, I had to think about it for a second. Finally, I go, I'm, I'm 51. I'm almost 52. And he goes, yeah, everything that you're here for is normal. You're supposed to like, not, you're not even supposed to be doing what you're doing anymore. Yeah. yeah. He goes, you're supposed to be in a lot of pain. It was like, what? I, I don't want to be in pain. Fix me. Yeah. Fix it though. I don't, I don't care if that's, that's just a number. Yeah. Yeah. Let me get out. I don't want to be the normal. Um, well, in your, in your 34 years, you have an incredible journey. So I'm going to take you back, man. Um, a lot of people have no idea where you came from or right. what your journey was. And so you're a California kid and you came from the high desert. Yep. Um, what part? Uh, so I was in Phelan. I grew up in Phelan, California, which is just a tiny little town. Um, it's like northeast of Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's like nobody, I think I've met like one person in my entire adult life that knew where Phelan was. And uh, it's funny because on the Mentors for Military podcast, someone listened to it and then they wrote me, they're like, dude, you're from Phelan. He's like, I'm from Phelan. I've never met anyone. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that that town is so small and it's just such um it's just where all the meth heads are not all of it obviously but a ton of it because there's a lot of open desert space um and there's just just a ton of drug activity out there and uh most people the only the closest they've been is driving to vegas that's they're like oh i think i drove past that when i was on my way to vegas i'm like yeah that's it yeah yeah when i when i um when we discussed where you were from and and I learned that. And, and I also listened to that, that mentors for mill podcast it was a great story. And we're going to hit some of it too. But I was like, man, cool. I can remember passing that area, like through Apple Valley and yeah, getting out yeah. there and just going, man, this I, is trash. I would hate to live out here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's true. And the people that, that live out there, um, a lot of them are just desperately trying to get out or the ones that decide to stay, they just kind of like, they just kind of accept that those like desert mentalities and um, you know, just accept it as normal. But for me, like I knew from, from day one, I was like, I got to get out of this place. Like I don't, I don't like it at all. I don't like where my life is headed here. Like I was finding myself in the back of cop cars way too many times. And I knew it was just going to keep progressively getting worse. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I loved, I loved the way, and we don't have to go too deep into it, but, I love the way you realize like, Hey, my home's broken and I don't want to be broken. I'm going to end the cycle. I need to leave. And you reached out to your dad and you, you, you found a way out. Yeah. And yeah. that, that's such a huge part of mindset of realizing I don't like what this is and no one's going to do anything about it. So I'm going to do something about it. Right. And now that was something I learned as a kid was like, you have, you can go one of two ways. So if you have a shitty childhood, you could go like full out victim mentality and be like, well, I, I'm terrible because I grew up like this and I have an excuse. Um, 
And I watched most of the people I grew up around take that route. But for me, it was like my dad was gone when I was one. My mom is a full-blown drug addict and alcoholic. And I'm like, so I feel alone. But instead of playing the victim, I was like, well, I have nobody to blame but myself. I was like, there's no one here but me. So if I'm truly alone, then everything I do falls on my shoulders. And I have to take responsibility for that. And so I think that was the shift for me. Um, and, and where I started to realize that I had to better my situation because I wasn't al- going to allow myself to play the victim. I love that. You know, it's just like too many people in this society today do not own their outcome and right. you will become what you decide to do. There's nothing stopping you in this world from um, deciding what direction you want to go and you get to write your life every day. People forget that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was thinking about that this morning. I was like, I was like, you know what? People might are going to read the book and they're going to be like, man, this guy just had a really shitty start. But I'm the way I was thinking about it, I was like, you know what? If you grew up, I was super lucky. And if you were born in the United States, then you are also super lucky and you have no excuse. Like if you you want to feel what like real poverty feels like. Uh, you need to go to a third world country and see what it's like to not have food and water or a roof over your head. Um, so the fact that anyone in the United States that is of sound mind and body could have an excuse is just absolute hogwash. There's, there's no reason for it. I, I totally agree. And, and you've embodied it um, in the short time since you've been 18. So it's 16 years. The amount of things that you've done has been phenomenal. And um, obviously your, your book is something I, I definitely want to hit on. And we're going to hit on that in a few minutes. Um, <clears throat> Cause that's really how we became friends was um, the journaling from your book that you've put onto your Instagram page that you and I've connected over, over, you know, uh, uh, you know, you had a quote at one point that I really appreciated, which was allowing yourself to be vulnerable was a strength. It, it empowers mm. others. Um, you don't have to be perfect. And, right. and you know, you have, you have a lot of wisdom um, at a young age because wisdom normally comes from trips around the sun. And, you know, comparatively, I mean, you know, you've done a lot. And um, so I, I love the story of getting in the Army. And I, I want to touch on that because it, it's got to entertain some people because everyone thinks that, you know, like, you know, you, you're a Green Beret, Special Forces. People get that confused, Special Operation Forces versus Special Forces. And mm-hmm. um, just let, let's real quick touch on, on your path because it's, it's a beautiful path, <laughs> how you got into it. And, 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 <laughs> yeah. and all you kids out there, pay attention real close because, you know, recruiters don't always tell the truth. Right. So basically the day before I walked into the recruiter's office, I was going to go. I wanted to be a firefighter. So I was in, I had done all the prereqs in California. I put myself through all the college courses. Uh, Another reason America is so great as a poor kid, I didn't have to worry. You know, I grew up on welfare, so I didn't have to worry about college. So um, I was going to college. I was doing all like the confined spatial awareness and all that stuff. Um, And the last step was to do EMT school before um, applying for the uh, Victor Valley um, uh, Fire Academy. Sorry. So I'm in EMT school. 
And the guy that I, I ride with, he's this like real small skater kid and we split rides. So I go with him one day, he comes with me and he comes up to me. He's like, Hey man, um, this guy, he's like trying to fight me or something. He's like, I don't know what his problem is. I was like, Oh dude, like, there's no way this guy wants to fight. Like he doesn't even know who you are. So I get up and I go to throw my gum away and I look at the guy and he looks at me and goes, what the hell are you looking at? And I was like, are you serious? I was like, all right, man, I'll see you at lunch. And so we go on lunch, he gets in my face and I headbutt him in the face. Um, you know, not recommended, right? This is just still me uh, in like the figuring things out phase of my life. So I'm just doing stupid things all the time. So I get kicked out of EMT school. The next day I go to the recruiter's office and I have no idea about the army. Um, I didn't, I didn't have any family besides my grandfather who's in the air force, but he never talked about it. And really I didn't consult anybody. I walked in and I said, Hey man, I want to be a ranger. And I, I knew the rangers were high speed, even though I had no idea about what they did. I just knew they were cool. And I was like, I want to do that. So he's like, he's like, all right, man, we'll come in um, tomorrow morning. I was there for like two minutes. He's like, come in tomorrow morning. We'll see what contract we get for you. And I was like, sweet. That was easy. Yeah. Like you just tell them what you want and you know, and they, they just tell you you're going to get it sweet. So I go back in the next morning. He's like, Hey man, I got good news and bad news. And I was like, okay. He's like, good news is I got you the airborne ranger contract, the option 40. I was like, sweet dude. That's awesome. I don't even care about what the bad news is. You just gave me everything I wanted. And he goes, bad news is they don't have any more infantry spots. Um, but they're, the only thing I could get you was a cook. And I was like, what? Like, do you have cooks in the military? I didn't even know that that was a, a job. I thought everyone just like fought. Um, and I was like, whatever, dude. I was like, how long do I have to do that? And he's like, he's like, like two months, man. And then you could just switch over to infantry, which is just a, a bull face lie. Like, obviously they were still accepting infantry. And obviously, you know, I'd have to do a lot more than two months before I didn't be able to switch over. Right. Um, but he got me, you know, hook, line and sinker. And I was like, fine, send it. And so I sent off for um, basic. And then I did, I, I show up to AIT and I see this like group of people just like marching around in these like all white um, uniforms. And they look so hideously ugly. It looks like a bunch of like, like milk what delivery. A bunch of fucking nerds. Look at those guys. Yeah, I was like, I was like, I was like, look at these nerds, man. Look, what are they doing? And this buddy of mine looks at me and goes, you idiot. He goes, that's going to be you. (laughs) And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, those are cooks, bro. He's like, they're called cook whites, idiot. You signed up for that. And I was like, oh my God, I made a mistake. And uh, so it, it ended up, I was so upset and I was so ticked. And, and what I didn't know at the time, um, was there's like this cultural thing within the military that if if you sign up to be a cook, you're likely trying to avoid combat. So, you know, for people, people that want to be cooks, I mean, more power to you. If that's what you want to do, then by all means, it's it's a needed MOS and it's an important job to fulfill. But if you're from a broken home and you're joining the military to prove to yourself that you have something special or that you um, could be something special. The last job you want to sign up for to prove yourself something is a cook. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah, you don't want to be like, like the best at making Salisbury steak. You're like right, yeah, like I, I want to <laughs> yeah. kick someone's ass. I want to jump out of an airplane. 
right like that's why i signed up is like because i had no father figure i had no like i needed somebody to i needed to do something difficult to prove to myself that i i could you know be a strong person because i never had you know a father figure tell me like hey man you're doing the right thing or you're on the right path or so for me it was like i was really seeking that from the military um and that was the last job to do that yeah. with so yeah it was off to a bad but, start but in the end you were able to through self-promoting get out of it yeah so it was i had to take like this huge risk right so right before deployment to afghanistan um the sergeant major had a personal security position uh, open up and that's that position was held by this like these two guys for probably like three years. So it was like really rare for this position to open up. And I was like, Hey, that's an opportunity for me to get out of the DFAC and be able to get out of the wire in combat. Like, even though obviously Sergeant major is not going to be running a gun and at least he's leaving the wire to go see um, his, his troops around the battlefield. So at least I'll have an opportunity to get out of the wire. So um, I'm in the DFAC one day and I'm, you know, flipping eggs. Like I'm getting ready to serve, uh, on the on the line and i see the the sergeant major walk up with my first sergeant and i was like i was like screw it i'm sending it i was like it's worth the risk right like one thing if for guys that aren't in the military one thing you never ever ever do as a private is talk to the sergeant major unless he talks to you first and then especially don't do that in front of his ncos because they're going to chew you a new ass uh for breaking that protocol so I was like, forget it. I'm sending it. Like, what do I have to lose? I'm already so miserable. So the, the Sergeant Major comes up in line. I'm supposed to put my, I'm sorry, dude. I was supposed to put my thing on. Uh, no, don't worry about it. Imp- 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 here you go. A part of reality. Yeah. Uh, so I'm supposed to put my, whoops, here. There we go. It's on sound right now. So the Sergeant Major walks up and the first sergeant's there. And I was like, I'm sending it. What do I have to lose? And I was like, hey, Sergeant Major, I heard you needed a personal security detachment. And I'd love to volunteer for that spot. And he was like, yeah, dude, but I do. He didn't call me dude. But he's like, yeah, man, I do need that spot filled. He's like, but we don't take cooks for personal security. And I was like, I was like, I was like, Sergeant Major, but listen, I understand that you don't take cooks. I was like, but I've trained really hard. I was like, I'll outshoot. And out PT physical perform anybody else that you have going for that spot. And I was like, so if you want to be safe in Afghanistan, I was like, pick me and I will do the job better than anybody else. And he was, he looked at me and he was kind of shocked and he was like, all right. And he looks at my first son and he goes, I'll take him. And I was like, Oh yes. And uh, yeah, so I was, <laughs> Until right. The, until so, the next my day. first sergeant, meanwhile, is just giving me this look like he's going to annihilate me. He's he's burning a hole through the side of my head and I could feel it. But I was like, you know what? I don't even care about that guy. So after that, we went on a field rotation for a week uh, out to I forget where it was in Germany, but it's just out in the out in the woods. And he the first sergeant comes up to me and goes, hey, Rogers, come here. And I was like, yes, for sergeant. He's like, you're not going to be cooking this week. And I was like, I was like, yeah, because I'm going to be 
like personal security, right? Because I got that job and I was all I was all happy about it. And he's like, no. He's like, you're gonna be digging that hole right there in the woods. And he's like, and keep improving on it until I tell you to stop. <laughs> so this dude, like no joke, just had me out in the woods just digging a foxhole for an entire week and just sleeping in it and digging in it and sleeping in it. And every single morning he would walk up with his coffee, look at the hole and just look at me and go, make it better. And I was like, that that was that was a moment for me. I was like, this oh, this asshole, he's just pissed at me and he's trying to like he's trying to get me to shut my mouth. Yeah. So yeah. um we get back from the field, he keeps me in the kitchen, uh sergeant major comes by again. And I could see like the first sergeant, like smirking, like he knows, um, you know, that I'm going to keep my mouth shut after a week of digging a hole as punishment. And the Sergeant Major walks up and I was like, Sergeant Major, I thought it was going to be your PSD. And he looks at the first sergeant and he kind of like gets a little irritated and he looks at him and goes, yeah, first sergeant, what happened with that? Like, I want him in my office now. Like, what is going on? I already told you that was my, my new, uh, personal security attachment. And the first sergeant was just, he was fuming, but at that point there's nothing he could do. And so uh, from there I went over to PSD and, and did that until I went to uh, selection after deployment. So, so you, you got an opportunity during that deployment to apply. For yes. Selection. Yeah. So um, the sergeant majors ended up switching out, but the new sergeant major, uh, he was an awesome dude and he was super supportive. Um, because there was a point in Afghanistan where they told me, they're like, listen, we're not going to do, uh, SFAS physicals in Afghanistan. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, why? And they're like, cause we're not sparing a doctor to like do a physical for you when we have, you know, combat going on and people coming in that are injured. And I'm like, come on, man, you guys just don't want to do it. And so luckily because that sergeant major was so cool he called the um he called the medical offices was like hey i heard you guys aren't doing my um my personal security guys uh physical and they're like oh no no we didn't say that no no no. we send them down right now sergeant major we'll happy to do it and so luckily they were just trying to like shaft me because they just didn't feel like doing it but luckily he had my back um they let me put in an application and um, I went straight from deployment. I was in Afghanistan for seven, eight months. I went straight there to home for two weeks and then went to selection from there. That's awesome. So in, in a short time, you went from getting kicked out of community college, trying to be a firefighter, to joining the Army, to being a cook, to being in the Ranger Battalion, personal security detail to to special forces select no so i i ended up that's part of the story we skipped is um in the when i got i got the ranger contract i went up ended up going to um airborne school i went to ranger selection and then i rolled my uh-huh. ankle so i didn't make um yeah oh, that's right so yeah. i didn't make ranger and then that's when i got sent to 173rd in germany uh, as a cook and then from there psd did the trip to afghanistan psd and then from there went to uh, SFAS for special forces selection. Yeah, that's right. In, in, in the Ranger selection, you violated rule number one of 
any operational thing. Take care of you. Yeah, team. exactly. I made it was you, it was you such wore, a rookie wore, mistake. You wore brand new boots on a ruck yep, march. Yep. I had one pair of like this was like I was making stupid mistakes from the beginning. So I was like, oh, I'm going to Ranger selection, so I need a good pair of broken in boots. So throughout basic AIT, throughout all of it, airborne school, I wore one pair of boots to break yeah. them in instead of switch switching Smart. back and forth would probably be a, a better idea, right? Because then I'd have a backup. Um, no, well, yeah, I guess I guess the it's not a bad idea to wear one throughout. The stupid mistake was the I think it's the first or second day of uh, RASP Ranger Assessment Selection is a swim test. And I wore that broken in pair of boots in the swim test. So the very next day when we have the ruck run, my, my broken in boots are just soaking wet. Um, so I put on the brand new out of the box uh, pair of boots and it was the biggest mistake ever. Yeah, that is yeah. a tough one. I, <clears throat> well, you got through it and then, and then you went to selection and so tell us a little bit about selection. Um, selection for me was I took that loss from uh, ranger assessment selection and realized exactly what you said. Like, you got to take care of yourself. So I went in with that mentality. Like, I wasn't, um, you know, just going to run balls to the wall on every single event, you know, without any care for myself. So um, I took moleskin for blisters. Uh, you know, I laced my boots super tight, like, you know, for my ankles and I, I always like watched my footing, you know, the best I could and things like that. Um, because the last thing I wanted was to have that feeling where it's like, Hey man, you might be good enough, but you got injured. So you're not going to find out. So right. selection, um, luckily went a lot smoother for me, uh, this time. And it was, I mean, obviously it's still tough and that's what I try to get through to guys. It's like, I showed up there just as scared, you know, not knowing if I was good enough. And you think you're going to show up and there's just going to be a million like um, studs that are just all yoked and, you know, the most physically fit human beings on the planet. But it's like the more you get into that environment, the, the more you realize that, you know, cadre and the people, they just want heart. You know, they just want people who have the heart to be there, that want to be there and that try their asses off in everything they do and they put the best intentions into everything they do and you right. know so um it's it's kind of like the motto of of what tier one athletes is all about which is be the you know competing with who i was yesterday being the best version of me that's today. great you know it's it's so important to always put your best foot forward you know ha and it's funny because most selections like you're talking about it's not the physical specimens that succeed all the time. It's the people that have the things you can't see, which is the smarts to get through the training and the heart and the desire and, and the ability to put others in front of themselves and to not. Quit. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, when I first got there, the, we were doing our runs and the guy that he, he was so fast. I mean, he was smoking everybody in every single run. And I swear he was beating us by like a f the second place person. It seemed like a full minute. This guy was insanely fast runner. And like, we were all kind of worried about him. Like, man, this guy's amazing. Like, did he do, was he professional? Like 
runner in his like past career or something. Um, because that happens a lot. Like there's, you know, a lot of athletes that, you know, aren't making the money they want or they want to, um, you know, just give back to the country will join. So you never really know once you go special operations, like what type of people you're going to be around, you know, like Pat Tillman and, um, they're like, I was in, in the Bravo course, the class behind me had a professional running back. I think he was on the Ravens. Um, but anyway, so I wasn't sure if he was some kind of like major athlete, that's how fast he was. And he quit like three days in and just out of nowhere, his bunk was clean and he was gone. And it's like, you know, athleticism is not, not a key for anything in your heart. Obviously we all have to have a basic level, but other than that, like I said, it's, it's about what's on the inside and what, what, what you got in your heart, you know, it's, it's the most important part. So you, you stayed in, uh, special forces. How long? And you start, you, you got assigned to 10th yes. group, right? So I did, um, three years with 10th group and that was it. So I got, luckily 10th group wasn't getting a lot of, uh, combat because they were going to Africa. And, um, luckily for me, cause obviously I still wanted to, to get in it. My first deployment, I got a purple heart cause I was getting, uh, we were taking, um, indirect fire nonstop and I almost got pegged with a round. Um, I got a bad concussion, knocked me out. Um, and then I, it hit the, the round hit another round, hit the mortuary affair affairs guys, uh, building his hooch where he lives and it started on fire. So I got in the car and I drove the Sergeant major to, um, a bunker obviously, cause my job was to keep him safe. And then, I get out of the car and I take off running at the mortuary affairs building at his, uh, to try and pull him out. Cause I was like, he's in there and his building is completely on fire. And so I jump up onto a connex and then I get over the T wall. And as I'm jumping down from the T wall, I look behind me and the Sergeant major followed me the whole way instead of going to the bunker. And then me and him went into the um, building and tried to get the guy out. And luckily as we were going in, like the first breath I took and you know, it's a firefighter. I don't know what I was going in, but dude, my lungs were like on fire. Uh, so I don't know if it was something burning in the, in the rafters or if it was like insulation burning or what, but it, it literally felt like, um, like glass shards were going in my lungs. Yeah. Stretcher fire smoke does not, uh, there's a reason we wear masks yeah. in, in this center. <laughs> Yeah. You know. So luckily, as I was going in, some another guy was coming out um, and he was like, hey, it's all clear. Uh, but that was really the most I got in as far as that first deployment was we just took rounds like I never got to shoot back. Um, and yeah. that's something I really wanted. So once I got to 10th group, uh, I got super lucky and they were like, hey, we got to give third group a break. So 10th group is going to take over Afghanistan. And I was like, sweet. So. Um, I got lucky. My very first deployment with, with group was uh, super kinetic and we got in a lot of, a lot of uh, troops in contact in that. Yeah. And that's, and that, you know, when you're pursuing that, that that's the benchmark you're looking for, you know, exactly. um, it's just like firefighters. They, they want to go to busy stations to get structure fires, you know, SWAT officers, police officers want to get on yep. SWAT and do hostage rescue and soldiers. They want to test the metal. They want to see if they, you know, have what they signed. And up that's, for. that's exactly what it was. Like I needed to know if I had what it took because 
it doesn't matter what tab they put on your arm or what color beret they give you or whatever uh, achievements you've had. You know, once you get on a two-way range, that's when you're going to find out if you, if the beret's wearing you or you're wearing the beret, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. I love that. I love that term, the two-way range. Yeah. And that's, there's a, there's a lot of range cowboys out there. And there is. And that, and that was a, a standard for us is like, it's not something that green braids would like shove in each other's face by any means or like brag about, or even talk about it. But you could see, you could see it in their faces. Like you go in a team room and you could almost immediately identify like who's seen combat just by the way that they, they carry themselves, their demeanor. It's, it, it just changes them. And from the outside perspective of watching all these dudes and, you know, knowing that, they've had that effect on who they are. Like that changed me big time. And I was like, I need that in my life. I want to know what that will do to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, you know, that, that kinetic effect that you got, it, it came with baggage. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. To this day, I mean, I struggle um, pretty extensively with PTSD and, um, you know, some of that's from childhood trauma and then, you know, war exacerbate, exacerbated it. But at the same time, it's, it's baggage that I carry around like proudly, you know, it's like, cause I wanted it so bad. Yeah. What choice do you have, but to accept it when you sought it out, you know? Right. Right. And, you know, we, we had, offline you know we had some conversations about it you know you know your personal stuff my personal Mm -hmm. stuff and and you know like um i pts is going to affect you in any of these careers it's just going to and you know what you choose to do with it is really going to be the defining factor and i love what you did with it and the fact that you wrote a book and it's coming out in February. Correct? Yes, February 23rd. February 23rd. And it's called Rising Above. Yep. yep. Right? And um so t- tell me tell me all in all what what this book's going to be about. So Rising Above is it's basically my story of, you know, childhood and going through my past and the whole book started not to write a book. Like I didn't get out of special forces and was like, well, I'm writing a book about it. Like that was, that was never the intention. The intention was to start journaling um, my past so I could start dealing with the traumas that I've been through. um, Hoping that I would find some kind of peace uh, by going through it instead of just like tucking it away and pretending like it never happened. Um, So I started journaling And I started to realize that it was like really helping me. And I was, I was digging back and I'm finding that all these things that I've been ashamed of for so long, like being this like poor kid on welfare, um, you know, and and having all these like crazy uh, traumas and just give people an idea. Like when I, when I say crazy traumas, I'm not talking about like my mom was just like mean or something, you know, like I've come home, I've come home and her car has been inside the house because she got drunk and drove it into the house owned by her boyfriend, who's a raging alcoholic. Um, And his response to that was to take a 12 gauge shotgun 
and blow the front door to pieces uh, because no one's going to disrespect his house, but him, you know? So like, just like the, these like absurd things were constantly just a regular part of it. And writing the book is like, I started to go back and unpack these things. And I started to realize like so many of the things that happened good in my life are because of those same traumas and they go hand in hand. So what a lot of people do uh, based on my experience and what I've seen and, you know, what I did was we just pack all that trauma away. Like it's this shameful part of our past and try to pretend like it doesn't exist. But the problem is when you do that, you pack in all the good things that come with it and you shove that away too. So you never get to own all that positive that came from those experiences. So writing the book made me realize like everything that is like good in my life was also tied to those. And I thought, man, this could really help people. Like they could, they could start looking at their past in a way that could really help them. And so I wrote the book and, um, then it started to evolve and then we got it edited and, you know, it just became this thing to where people were like asking like, Hey, when's it coming out? I'm like, I don't know. Dude, honestly, I wrote the book thinking there would, I would sell like two to my family members and I'd put one up on my shelf to look at, to know that I did it, you right. know? <laughs> and then, yeah. but now it's, it's become this thing where I get asked daily, like, when is it coming out and can they pre-order? And I'm like, like people, people need, they need help coping with their trauma, you know? And, you know, remember talking to you about what happened in, with, uh, you know, losing that guy. And it's like, man, so many people have so many insane stories just tucked away. Yeah. It, it's, I tell you what, it's pe people think that post-traumatic stress is only going to happen if you're in some kind of kinetic right. environment. And what, what I found in my journey was, I was just like you, just tolerating this, that, the other thing and categorizing it as normal experiences. And they were not normal experiences. And the, like you said, they had a negative effect, but they also had a, a, a positive effect. And I chose to go the direction of, um, after um, one of my family members had something horrible happen to them, I was like, I need to help this person. Do I want this person to be disabled with a disorder or um, depression or do I want to help this person survive right. and I I was I remember being in my in my gym with the, the whiteboard and I wrote PTSD up there right and I crossed out the D and I put an S and it, it was a cathartic moment for me and um realizing that we have a choice how to handle this and you handled it in a beautiful way. You decided to manifest all your post-traumatic stresses into a, um, a book and you're offering it to everyone else and allowing yourself to be vulnerable and showing your strength and being vulnerable. So other people can use your, your vulnerabilities and your experiences to become better versions of themselves. Well, I appreciate that. And you know, and people may not, sorry, let me cut you off there. No, no, because I, I love I love your story. And what what I love most about your story is that because it happened to someone you care about instead of you, it forced you to like rethink about the entire thing. 
And it's so yeah. easy to look at ourselves and be like, well, I'll just deal with it. And then we just kind of accept it. Um, but one thing that happened, you know, like you said, I'm putting it out there to be vulnerable. And I think people don't understand uh, kind of how tough that was. Um, right now, as we speak, I get um, messages from my own family members daily talking about how um, my mother is cussing them out and, um, you know, calling them nonstop and harassing them because she found out I wrote a book and she's trying to exploit me. So it's like this stuff is real and it's not something that's real and and over for me. Like it's still happening. You know, like I I try to do something um, to help other people and I try to do something positive for myself and I am literally being sought out to be attacked by my own mother. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, uh, it's like this is it was a risk, you know, and I knew the risk when I put myself out there to to be in a public light. But I did not expect it this quick. And, you know, people, they don't realize that there's a lot more to it than, you know, you just want to have some a limelight or something, because, I mean, some people are risking quite a bit putting their stories out there. Right. And that's, you know, that's. <clears throat> That's so true. And, and um, you hit on something just, you know, the, the book, the journal, like your, um, your Instagram page, Sean Buck Rogers, um, you know, you, you, the way we connected is that you journaled a lot of your thoughts onto your Instagram page. And I, mm-hmm. I remember once you said, I'm done putting up war pictures because there are a lot of people out there that just want to see war pictures and, and like the war pictures. I'm putting up what my thoughts are and where my growth is type thing. You didn't have that exact statement, but that was the direction you went. Right. And, and the reason like I reached out to you, come friends with you was because my growth came from when I originally started the tier one athletes page, I started writing thoughts in a secret place without anyone knowing who I was. Like no one knew like tier one athletes. And all of a sudden, like there was like, a thousand followers I'm like holy crap you know a thousand people want to know what i have to say and right and i and i was just like posting like my workouts and i was posting like i, I was basically cleansing my brain getting my thoughts out and and you hit on it you said journals so good to get these experiences out and and it helps you be healthy over what you lived and i want to encourage people to do that take the time like if things bother you take the time to put yourself in a quiet place reflect and write down, you know, be in touch with yourself and, and write down what your feelings are. Get in touch with your feelings. Get them out. Um, I think this day and age where everything is at, in, at access in, your, in the palm of your hand, people forget to realize, like, it takes work to be a normal human being. And it's okay to hurt. <laughs> it's okay to hurt. It's okay to yeah. be angry. It's okay to be frustrated, um, to be embarrassed. And, and then, and, and vulnerable. And, and that's the thing is that yeah. once you start doing something out of the norm of your, uh, of your pack, whatever you're in, I'll tell you this from my personal experience, and I'm sure you have something similar that the wolf pack will fucking turn on the wolf and start eating you. Like, yeah, how dare you true. do something fucking different? You know, how dare you right. expose yourself? How dare you think you're better than us? Like, I've come across this thing like people go, 
oh, you just, you're just doing this job. Somebody said this to me recently. You just, you just want to go, go to these fires because you want to have something to talk about on your, on your podcast. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I haven't talked about one structure fire on my podcast ever, ever, you know, and, you know, have I had experiences that could be sure. Um, and, and as a guest, you know, people have asked me things and I've, I, I've said things on their podcast, but um, I'm just doing something that, you know, I, I want to bring people that have amazing experiences to other people. And that's, that's why this yep. exists. Well, and that's, that's one thing that they, they haven't experienced and they're just watching it from the outside. They haven't experienced how doing a podcast or a YouTube channel connects people and the type of people that you could end up connecting with that you would have otherwise never had the opportunity to talk to is it provides so much growth and it's like so much fulfillment. Like they don't know how good that is. I totally agree. It's like you, you, you have no idea the positive people that have come into my life since I've started, you know, allowing myself to be open. It's changed my life for the better exponentially. Like maybe you should stop putting up walls and allow your story to get out there and, and see the, you know, have the courage because it's so much harder than people ever could imagine to put your story out there and open it up to the internet. Right. Like, you know, it's like, that's, yeah. it's terrifying. But then once you, once you step over that line and you see that your story is positive, positively impacting other human beings, and then you're connecting with other people who are having a positive impact. I mean, it's like, it's like what we're meant to be doing on this earth, at least for us anyway, yeah, because it, it really does. Amazing. And it's, it's an incredible group of people that as, as we all get to know each other, it's, it's such a positive environment. And I've, thoroughly enjoyed the ride and I've, I've started to make friends with people that I never would have thought I'd been friends with and it, it's they're great people so yeah yeah I've, I've, I've same I've had an absolute blast and to see like the the feedback and you know and the, the type of people that are open to it like tomorrow you know I'm talking to Neil Magny's a UFC fighter like I would have never never expected to ever be talking to this guy but because of this path, he feels like I have something to bring to him. And, you know, I definitely think, no, he's got a lot to bring to the table for all of us. It's just, I mean, it's cool. So instead of people being upset about it, I encourage them to put themselves out there. You can't, we underestimate our own story so much. And we just give so much credit to other people. And then we just undervalue ourselves exponentially. And it's like, stop doing that. You have something to say. Your story is valuable and is important. So right. say it. Get it out there. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's, um, it's, yeah. And, you know, with that, you know, um, you, there's a short piece that we, we did skip over. And I want to, I want to try to hit, I want to, I want to go back to it. I want to go back to your transition from the Army to uh, law enforcement because we have a, we have a, so let's oh, do yeah. that real quick. Yeah, so I was, as I was getting out of the military, I know a lot of guys um, do this, but I was shotgun blasting um, every job that I thought I would be good for. It's like, well, what is a, you know, what is a Bravo going to be good at? And 
I put myself in this tiny little box to where the only thing I'd be good at was federal or local law enforcement. So um, I applied to the CIA, the FBI, um, Secret Service, and uh, Denver Police Department. Um, I got I got hit up by a guy from the Secret Service from their counter assault team, and was like, "Hey man, we're we're doing this new pilot program. We're going to take special operations guys and put them straight into the counter assault team." I was like, "Dude, that sounds amazing." Um, so they pushed me through the process really quick. I think I did all the way up to the polygraph in one day. Um, and then they scheduled me for the polygraph. I went down and uh, this lady was just, it was a joke. The polygraph was a complete joke. She was like talking about um, what my, what my dead friends would think about me not being honest. And it was just like, she was so disrespectful and unprofessional that I was like, this is, this is trash. So anyway, she ended up failing me. Uh, because I told her what I thought and um, the police department was just surprisingly well organized and I got through the process smooth. Um, I went to the police department and right off the bat, I just wasn't having a good time. I wasn't enjoying it. Um, You know, being on patrol and dealing with people nonstop, wasn't the best, but I, I knew I wanted to get on a special team, whether it was SWAT or an impact team or something like that. And so uh, worked really hard at that, got on a citywide impact team, and then George Floyd happened, and that changed everything. And then what, what ended up uh, that impact team is uh, basically a community response team to problems happening currently in the city right yes so it was citywide it was the first of the first team the first citywide team in denver um it was a new team and the whole idea was that instead of having the city chunked off and staying in your area you would have access to the entire city and you would respond to critical incidences um or not really critical incidences but the locations themselves to reduce uh the crime in that area So let's say one part of the city is just getting annihilated with shootings. Excuse me. We would go to that area um, and then try to find gangsters and get the guns off the streets, um, et cetera. So you you just go to the hotspots throughout the city, which was an amazing concept. um, And it was a great team to be on. Like the teammates were amazing. um, And we had a blast. It was it was really, really fun. And I was really enjoying it. And then um, once George Floyd happened, we were in, because we were a special team, we were on the riots all day, every day for like, I think we were doing like 15 to 16 hour days um, at the riots for about six days straight, seven days straight. And from there, the department um, started getting a bunch of backlash from the media and they weren't about to look bad so then they started hammering the officers and then chief Pazin is just a complete wuss and he started trying to go after officers that weren't even under investigation he started creating his own investigations based on uh news clippings that he saw so before even asking what what happened he would just see a news clipping and then open investigation on uh, those officers just to try and appease the media 
And that's that's a good reason to get out right there. <laughs> yep, exactly. I was like he and he went he went like straight like black, you know, like like code black, you know, when you just stop thinking and um after the media started giving him a hard time, he stopped like coming out of his office. Uh it was really bad. So none of us felt like we were supported. We felt like our own leader, like our chief is just dropping the ball just so bad. It's like embarrassing. And I was like, you know what? It was just the bump I needed to move on to what I really wanted to do. And that was, you know, influence the community I loved and give back to uh, yeah. the special operations. So we, we got the book out rising above. Um, we have mm-hmm. your Instagram site, Sean Buck Rogers, right? We have the YouTube yes, channel FNG Academy. And that's it. We have your podcast. And your podcast is also FNG yes. Academy. So FNG the, that's podcast. just the FNG podcast. And just yep. so all of you trying to get into the career, FNG means that. Yeah, Fucking new go. guy. Yep. So all, <laughs> all you kids coming into any wore- community, you're always going to be the FNG until there's another FNG. That's right. So you get bumped out of that spot or you earn your way out of that spot. Well, Sean, I got to tell you, man, like I could sit here and record for probably three hours, but um, we may. (laughs) I know. Yeah, we we glossed over stuff, but it was fun. Let's hit back in a couple months after the book comes out for a while and we'll cover more sections. Um, But I can't tell you how much I appreciate being able to put an episode down with you. And um, I look forward to hooking up with you again here in the future. Yeah, sounds good. And hopefully we could uh, get you on the FNG podcast and uh, tell your if, side. If, uh, if I'm going to be vulnerable to anybody, it's going to be you. It's uh, you're motivational for me. So. Well, I appreciate good, that, Sean. brother. Let's, hey, let's but that you take care. Sounds good. Bye. You too, man. We'll talk to you later. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.